0: I'm Dan Underhill. I'm the student pastor here. Our pastor is away. He's actually uh, helping out another church, a sister church of ours uh, down in Florida. So you guys are going to get to talk about work today with me. Sound good? I like the way you're fired up about it. So one of my most favorite country songs is from Alan Jackson. Okay, Alan Jackson sings a song called Drive. How many of you guys have heard of it? If you may not have heard of that song, you might think it's called when daddy let me drive, right? Two hands on the wheel, right? Can't replace the way it made me feel. Come on, you guys you guys hate country? <laughs> okay, well, I'm doing my best. I'm from New York, okay? So <laughs> here's the deal. I mean, I, I remember the first time my dad let me drive. Now, see, as I came here from New York, I'm originally born and raised in New Hampshire, okay? So my dad, he didn't do things the way the law preferred us to do things, okay? So it was right around the age of 9 or 10 that I started to drive. I know, right? Could you imagine, right? Can you imagine, like, if we did the things that we grew up doing with our kids, they would lock us up. Am I right? Oh, my gosh. It's crazy. But nonetheless, he started me out with this Jeep. It was a 1968 CJ5 that was held together with duct tape, a little bit of grease, and a whole lot of prayer. Okay, and we had this back field where we would be allowed to drive, right? Now, so you're thinking nine, 10 years old, I can't see over the steering wheel and sit in the seat. So there I am, I'm in the back, and we drive around. We had a loop. We would just do this one loop over and over and over again. And see, the old speedometers just had a one, a two, a three, a four. It just went up to nine. And so, you know, as a man, I'm like, how high can I get the speedometer to go? I mean, that was my goal, right? And so I started, but my dad only showed me how to put it in first. He was smarter than I was, right? Until one day. See, I'd, I'd driven tractors with him. You throw it in first, you just let the clutch out and go. Here we go, right? But I remember there's always a little diagram that tells me where second is and third and fourth. And I remember that one day. I'm doing my, I'm doing my hot laps. I'm doing circles, going around, going around, going around, going around. That only let us do those circles because in the middle were these massive mounds of dirt that were probably about five feet high, right? So we could go around the outside as fast as we wanted in first, just stay out of the middle. Well, I got daring one day, and I said, I can shift this thing. As I'm standing up, driving it, reaching over, using the throttle like this because the seat's behind me. No way. I'm like this. Freckles, blue eyes, blonde hair, (laughs) face wild, right? Picture it. I go to take a right-hander, and I'm like, I got this. I can shift. So I reach over. As I reach over, right, because I I take my weight off my left leg, I put it on my right leg. What's under my right leg? You got it. Boom. Hit the clutch. But I also have to look down because I'm so short. And I grab it and pull it from first to second. What I didn't realize is when I looked down, I turned. When I came back up, I was still standing on the throttle. And I'm in second wide open, right? I had turned right into one of those dirt mounds that was about five feet high. And that sucker was like Bo and Luke Duke, like this. And I landed that thing. And and when I tell you, it was a mess. There were eyebrows, elbows, snot everywhere. It was a regular old mess. And I'm sitting there going, I made it. You know what I did? I got out of it. I closed the duct tape door, right? Got out. And you know you do that cold walk back to the house like nothing just happened. It's no big deal. It's no big deal. So okay. I just walked right back, right back to the house. And obviously by the dirt that was scattered all over the the Jeep, my father knew what had happened. But I walked away. I thought I could drive. Just because you're behind the wheel doesn't mean you know how to drive. That's a universal law. And if you've driven out on the roads for about one minute, you know that's true. There's sometimes handing out driver's licenses like, how did you get that? Do you know somebody? The same way, just because you have a job, and you guys can attest to this, it doesn't mean they know how to work. Just because they got a job does not mean that they know how to work. And here's the deal. There's a time that we need to go from, which is, We know about it. And now we need to be about it. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It says this in verse 11. says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Man, we are wired to work. And we have to make that shift from knowing about work to working. And we're wired to work by God. In Genesis, God puts us in the garden. Every man and woman here, we are all designed to work. And just for the additional info, so are your kids. They will not die if you put them to work. Go ahead and just, yeah, mule, get in there. Give them some chores just to make them, what, I have to do work? Yes, it will not kill you. We're all designed to work. And we need work. Work is pivotal for us. And sometimes we we focus so much on retirement that we forget that there's actual health and there's joy in the journey of work. We're designed for it. We're hardwired for it. It's a part of our providing, which is critical. It's critical for us as men and women to provide for our families. That's a part of our purpose that needs to be a priority. And we actually secure the next generation by working hard for the generation that's sitting in our own homes, by teaching that work ethic, by showing them, hey, you're not going to get $15 an hour just because you sat and ate dinner with me and I asked you to clean up the dishes. That's not realistic. That doesn't set them up for a win. That doesn't set us up for a win because we're raising the next generation that's right in front of us. And when it comes to work, we have to make sure it stays in its proper priority. See, we have all these things that beg and buy at our time and work. We need to work to put food on the table. That's a part of being responsible. We need to work. It's good for us. It's healthy. It helps in vigorous. It helps us from not going crazy. Like if I didn't go to work each day, my wife would be like, "Hey, when are you leaving?" because I would drive her nuts, because I'm actually designed and wired to like accomplish and go after goals, and, and, get, and I want to go out there, and I want to beat something today. How many, how many of you guys walk out of the door that way? I mean, you walk out of the door each day, and you're just like, man, I got I to gotta beat somebody. And I'm not physically. <laughs> you're in church. I mean, like, you want to, oh, I'm sorry. You want to win. How many people want to win when you go out to work in the day, right? You want to win. You want to go after it. You want to get after what God's designed you to do. And that's healthy. That's good. That's productive. In fact, God has stronger words for it. Check this out. This is what it says in 1 Timothy 4.8. It says, any man who does not provide for their family is worse than an infidel. An infidel. That's not who I want to be labeled as. So God is endorsing it and saying, go to work and knock it out while you're there. And man, if you name the name of Jesus as your Lord and Savior, man, you better be the best worker there, okay? Or at least, you know, giving it everything you've got because he goes with us everywhere we go. How are we representing our heavenly father when we go to work? And work takes on so many different forms. There's there's spiritual work, right? That's probably the most important and usually the most neglected because there's no paycheck that stops showing up if we don't do the spiritual work, right? But there's other forms of work. There's our physical work, what we do for a living. There's our relational work, right? It takes work to manage relationship, okay? Relationships are critical to us. But it takes work and effort. It takes emotional work. How many married people in the house? You gotta work emotionally, yes? Okay. Oh, I get it. <laughs> She's here with you or he's here with you. Like, no, it's easy. It's great. It's all magic and rainbows and unicorns. I, I, no problems at all. Come on, it takes work emotionally to be married, doesn't it? It does. It takes work, and we have to invest in that work. Okay, It is huge for us. Work can also have a shadow side, though, to it. You see, every blessing that God gives us has a shadow side. What I mean by shadow side is as I stand here, my shadow is there. If I move my arm this way, it looks like my arm. It's not my arm. If I move it up, down, right? I can do all those things. The shadow looks like me, but it's not me. Every blessing that God gives us has its blessing, for sure. But if we don't manage it properly, it has a shadow side, it looks real, but it's not. And if we don't keep work in its proper place of priority then what we do is we give into a counterfeit. It looks like us, but it's not. And then we find ourselves on the gerbil wheel of work, running so hard ambitiously to accomplish, 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 and finding ourselves feeling empty like this shadow that's on the floor. You see, we have to keep it in its right priority. You see, we exchange our time for money. That's what work is. I agree to a certain amount of money... And then I give time, my energy and effort. The shadow side of work is when we start to exchange our identity for money. And it's a slow fade. We get there very casually because if someone you know introduces you to someone you don't know, the first question they typically ask you is, what do you do for And our culture pushes us into what we do is who we are when it comes to work. Now be sure, you can't remove your actions, okay, from your integrity and who you are. We'll get to that later. But as soon as our identity becomes the work we do, we've missed something very critical. Because what happens when all of a sudden... That talent I had isn't there anymore. What if I get let go? What if my company downsizes? And if my identity is attached to that work and not in who I was created and called to be, then I've lost my identity because I put it in the wrong place. I accepted the shadow side of work instead of God's calling for us to work. You see, our work can never define us. It can never define us. Our God can. Our work cannot define us, but our God can. And he does. He talks about what we're designed for, and it's in his book. It's in his word, and it's there for us to research and to engage in. And good for you, you're here today to kind of hear more about who you are and what he says about you. Because that's where we can gain our identity. It's not from our jobs or our talents. And we can't climb a corporate ladder to find our value. Because once we get to the top of that ladder and we expect value to be there, you know what happens? It moves, doesn't it? It moves. Now, please, hear me screaming. Go out there and fight. Go out there and work hard. Work hard. That's our job. That's what we're designed and wired for. But we can't exchange our value for work. God puts certain gifts, talents, and abilities in each one of us. And when he does, he's expecting something out of us. See, God's a good investor. He's never going to put something in you that he's not looking to get out of you. Why? Because he loves all of you. And there are things that he only put in you that others need. And he said, here's what the world needs and I'm going to send you to do it. This is going to be perfect. And he chooses the weak things in our world to do this. In fact, in Matthew, we're not going to turn there right now, but in Matthew chapter 25, he talks about a parable of the talents. And here's what happens. It says, in the kingdom of God, there is a rich young man. And he sent out on a journey, but before he left, he took talents. Now, these talents are actually money values that he gave to each one of his servants. To one, the Bible says he gave 10. I'm sorry, he gave five. To the other, okay, he gave two. To the next, he gave one. Each one of us have a particular potential. Now, right in here, we can find out from God Everybody has the same value. We don't all have the same potential. Okay? Everybody, God created man equal. We are all equal. That doesn't mean that I can do what you can do. If you see me get up here and try to throw on some skinny jeans and rock that song out like Wesley just did, (laughs) the cops would be like, get him out, get him out, get him out, get him out. We have never left church that fast. I can't compete with that. I don't need to compete with that. I need to work with what he gave me to do. And God gives each one of us talents like he does in this story in Matthew chapter 25. He says he goes on his trip and he comes back. And he comes back to each one of them. And to the one that he gave five, he said, what did you do? And he says, I went out, I invested, and I worked. And here is ten talents back. He's like, well done, good and faithful servant. What about you, the one that he gave two? What did you do? I took these two and I went out and I worked and I'm bringing back four and he's like well done great job he went to the one who had one talent and said, what did you do and he goes I knew that you were a hard master that would hold me accountable and so I buried it in the ground and I brought back here's what's yours the bible says that this story is like the kingdom of God which lets us know that God is putting his stamp right on this story other than the fact that it's in his Bible. And he says, you wicked servant, you should have at least put it in the bank and got me a little bit of interest. And he took the talent away from the one who had one. And he gave it to the one who he gave five. God is expecting a return on us. He's expecting us to do what only we can do. And there's a work that we have to engage with to do it, and we can't be afraid of it and be hoping and wishing for retirement when God's saying, it's not retirement time. It's time to go. It's time to go, and let me address this. If you are retired, awesome. That is great. Good for you for financially planning. That is something to be looked up to. There's still work for you to do, and it may be spiritual work in the kingdom of God, raising up the next generation, mentoring, working, and helping our culture be better than it is today. We can't just complain about the problems that we see in our culture without addressing them. Otherwise, we're just perpetuating the problem. We have to get involved, roll up our sleeves, and do the work. Because God has a plan. He takes your talent, and when you partner with Him and you sacrifice your goals and your dreams, He says, I've got more than you could have dreamed. Not only am I going to do what you were planning and dreaming and goaling and scheming anyway, because I love you and I built you that way. Now I'm going to do more than you could have asked, dreamed, or imagined, but it's going to stretch far beyond you. And I've seen that live out in my life. In the short 42 years I've been here. God says, here's what you have. And if you give it back to me, here's all that you could have. And God has done far beyond what I could have dreamed or imagined. One of those things is sitting on the front row looking so sweet. I mean, I married way outside of my league. (laughs) You should not agree quite so much. It's a little offensive. It hurts me right here. But I did. I can't prepare for that. I can't plan for that. I can submit to that and watch God bless it and bless my life with it. And it's incredible when I do. But it stretches me. It stretches me to give up and relinquish control. How many control freaks we got in the house? It's, don't lie in God's house, it's not safe, okay? But we love control. I'm one of them. I love to control. It's funny, the more I try to control, the more I realize I don't have control, right? And when we relinquish that control to God, God says, "Mm, "Now we're in covenant. Now we've got an agreement. Now I can work with this. Now I can build this more than ever. Watch, I will stretch you and give you more than you could dream or imagine. I have a future for you. It's a hope and the opportunity to work. It stretches us and gives us the opportunity to be better than we were. It gives us that opportunity. So if we don't engage in the work, we're shortchanging ourselves." We're leaving money on the table. We're leaving opportunity on the table. And God has so much for us. He wants so much for us. Don't rob yourself. Work. Work at it. And I understand. Sometimes you feel, I feel this way. Sometimes I'm working so hard and I'm not seeing the results of everything I'm investing. I'm not seeing everything I'm putting in come out and that's frustrating, but here's what we can't do. We can't quit. We cannot quit, and here's an illustration for you that speaks right to it. You see, I've been trying to get my health in line, okay, and do the difficult work of eating right. It's hard to eat right. Am I right? right. That is, it's hard. It is hard to eat right, right? Okay, but when you do, you get a result. Okay, I started working through this and getting up my workout partners with me, 6 a.m. in the gym, and he's throwing around a thousand pounds of weights, and I'm like, "Hey, are you using those two and a halfs?" <laughs> I'm gonna get them. My wife's coming in in a minute, and I'm gonna go ahead and just get them ready for her. And I'm like, "Oh my gosh, it burns!" <sighs> and I'm in there, I'm working out, working out, working out, and I'm seeing. Ready? We, all, whenever we work out and eat right, we're all looking, not necessarily in the mirror, we're looking. At the scale, aren't we? I want to see these numbers move. I got to this point where I plateaued, right? And it was working, everything was working, and I'm still doing all the hard work, and all of a sudden it plateaued. For three and a half weeks of eating right. When I say eating right, I'm talking about salmon and broccoli, and that's about it. And I'm just like, God created more than salmon and broccoli. I can show you in the scripture and in the earth. But nonetheless, I did what was right. And I said, man, I got to a point where I plateaued and I was frustrated. The doctors today have amazing technology. They have this ability to x-ray your body and tell your bone mass what kind of fat is inside, what percentage, how much muscle, how much this, how much that. And I said, I'm going back to this guy and be like, man, I've three and a half weeks. This ain't working. And I go in and they just put you on this thing and they scan your body, right? And I'm just like, mm-hmm, 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 waiting for it all to end. And then all of a sudden, I hear the tech who's running go, oh my gosh. And I'm like, is something wrong? <laughs> Sorry. I, think I was like, what, what's happening? I don't know what's happening, right? Another person comes in, they're like, look at this. I'm like oh, whispering assistance to doctors freak me out. I'm like, pff, 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 pff. And they said, this is awesome, Mr. Underhill. I was like, first of all, Mr. Underhill lives in New Hampshire. Second, what's up? They're like, you've plateaued, yes, and your weight didn't move, but you lost 12 pounds of fat in three and a half weeks. And at the same time, you gained nine pounds of muscle. And that's why you've seen a total flat line. And here what I'm trying to explain to you, this is not about me and working out. This is about you doing work and you're not seeing the result. Don't give up on what you're doing. Keep doing the right things. Keep going to church. Keep reading your Bible. Keep praying. Keep bringing your children to camps. Keep investing around the table inside of them and see what God wants to do inside of them because you're not getting the whole story if you just look at what's happening on the outside. You have no idea what's happening inside their hearts. There is an amazing amount of things that happen inside of us that we're totally unaware of every day. And if you just keep doing the right thing, you will see a result. A result. You can't give up now. You've come too far to quit. And I get it. It's hard sometimes because we don't see the outward result of what we've been doing internally. But what's the consequence if we quit? You see, we have to find new ways to measure our success. We can't just use the model that everybody around us uses for success. If you accomplish this, see, success is not by dollar signs or zip codes or owning or materials. We have to redefine success. And here's what happens when we do when we redefine success, we change the game. And redefining success, to define success, we must ask what did God intend for me to do? What was it that God intended for me to do in my life? Because if we measure success any other way, it keeps moving. It's a bar that we try to get after, and then once we climb over that bar or accomplish that thing, we move on to the next thing. That's where we get that gerbil mentality. We're just picking up goals and going and going and going and feeling empty inside. Now be sure, God has goals for you, And it's celebrate those wins and move on to the next thing. But when you define success as what did God intend for me to do, it doesn't just move the bar. It changes the game. It changes the entire game that we're involved in. And you pull away from the pack. You don't have to give in or be subject to what someone else says. You're doing what God has designed you to do. And there's nothing more freeing. There's nothing more exhilarating. You know? By redefining our success, we establish a value. We establish what's really valuable to us because what's valuable to us, we'll work for. We will absolutely work as long as it has value. If it doesn't, we'll give up, we'll quit. But what we value is determined by how we think. You see, our thoughts will turn to actions and our actions will turn into a reputation and a reputation will turn into a legacy. This is what God says in Proverbs 23, 7. It says, for as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. So is he. How do we view work? How do we view our mission and our calling? How are we looking at these things? Because I can tell you for certain, in my line of work, your children are watching. And how we view it and how we talk about it, it comes out. I was in my neighborhood just the other day, and there was a lady Who was talking to me about having a kid over for a sleepover? And as they had this child in their house in a sleepover, he started going off on a political rant. The kid was nine years old. A political rant. I'm not going to get into the intricacies of what's going on politically, nor his rant. Where do you think all that information came from? Home? Around the table? What was being said? They're listening, they're watching and i want to encourage you you're a man on a mission you do not need permission to lead your family lead them and lead them well no one has to give you a green light to go just go just do it just get after it because it's worth it we have to stop working for net worth and start working for spiritual worth What is the spiritual worth that's sitting around our tables that are waiting for us to get home from being out there slaying the corporate giants every day? What are they, and what are they looking for, and how can we invest in those things? That way, we secure the future for the next generation by developing our own. Not just talking about it, being about it. You see, I was bought with a price. I was bought with a price, the Bible says, and it wasn't to sell out to work. I was bought with a price to prioritize, to work on prioritizing my faith first, to work on prioritizing my family, and to work to leave a legacy. That's why I was bought with a price. I wasn't bought with a price just to be erased. I wasn't bought with a price to get in the same car, drive the same road, do the same thing over and over again, and make myself nauseous. I was bought to do something only I can do and I have to get after doing it. You see, David got this. Our pastor's been talking about David for the past few weeks. And this is what it says toward the end of the story. It says in 1 Samuel 17, starting in verse 50 and 51a. It says, Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He took out his sword, he drew it out of its sheath, and he killed him, and he cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw that their champion was dead and they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath. When your work and your faith collaborate, it inspires other men to fight for what's right. Look at what it says here. David steps up, kills the giant. All of these men were waiting on the sidelines, waiting for someone to do what was right. They're all waiting, going, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Not getting in the game, not doing the work, not investing, not putting in to what was important and defending what was right, but watching and waiting for someone. When you do it, when you step up, when David did it, and he cut off the head and he let his faith in his work collaborate, he catalyzed them because they came out of those trenches and it says that they chased the enemy and the Philistines all the way out of there. And there are men and women around you in your work, in your church, in your communities that are waiting for you to step up and collaborate with God. And as soon as you do, it inspires them to fight for what's right. And there's no defeat in that. There's absolutely no defeat in that. Because when we redefine the success and say, God, what did you call me to do? And I do that. I don't care what people think about me. It doesn't matter the court of public opinion to me. It matters what his opinion is of me. And it frees me. It lets me free to do what he's called me to do. And it's hard. It's hard work but it's worth it. And again, we've got to step away from what other people say about us and start believing what God says about us. What do you you think runs through God's mind when he thinks about you? I want you to think about that for a second. What is it that you think runs through God's mind when he thinks about you? If you're anything like me, when I asked myself this question, it was, oh man, gosh, he could have done better there. Failed that. Man, I wish you would just work a little. I wish you would do this. And that's not real. You see, God is less concerned about your failures than you are. He is much less concerned about your failures than you are. He knew them, He foresaw them, and He not only saw them, He went out and said, you know what? I'm going to buy him with a price. What's the most expensive thing that I have? God went out and took his son, put him on a cross and said, because I love you so much, I'm willing to pay the highest price just to get you. So when he thinks about you, let's go to his word. What does it say? We were bought with a price. We are beautifully and wonderfully made. We were fashioned In our womb, we're the head and the tail. We're the apple of his eye. He paid everything to get us to get you. See, we have to start thinking about what does he think about us and when does what he think about us trump everybody else's views and opinions of us? Because if we're honest, we feel sometimes unqualified to do this work. We feel like, hey, I'm not exactly good enough to do this. And the truth is you're not, nor am I. In fact, if you saw me in high school, the last person you would put on this stage to lead your students to be a leader of the next generation explain biblical truth to them would be this guy, the last guy. But that's the amazing part. He uses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. When you commit your life to him, when you submit all of those plans to him, he can do more and stretch you way out and do way more than you could imagine. That feeling of being unqualified when we come into the dinner table, as most of us men do, and we sit down after we've slayed every corporate giant out there, and we come home and we disengage. We disengage because we're exhausted and we're tired. And meanwhile, the greatest legacy is sitting right around us, looking at us saying, hey, you want to throw the football, Dad? Yes. Yes. Hey, Dad, can you play with this doll with me? Absolutely. I've been thinking about it all day. (laughs) The worst for me. Dad, can you help me with math homework? Talk to your mom. (laughs) It's just not there. But we have this legacy around us, and just because we feel unqualified doesn't mean that we are. That feeling of not being qualified is nothing more than an emotion. If we truly understood what God says about us, then we'd be like, yeah, I'm unqualified. Isn't it great? (laughs) Watch what he's going to do now. That way it's not about me. I can't take credit for it. I I can't say, oh my gosh, this is all about me. Look at what I was able to produce. No, look at my life is a living highlight reel of what God can do if you realize I'm not smart enough. Watch what he can do. Watch what he can do inside of you and with you and for you. See, if we're fearfully and we're wonderfully made, then that means God saw value in us. And if he saw value in us, he wants to see value from us too. And that means we have to work. And one of the only places where God takes a step back and says, well, you don't have to work for this one. I already paid for this. Is when it comes to your relationship with God. That free gift of salvation. Again, when I said, he sent his son to find you. He paid the ultimate price just to find you. That's what this is about. That's why we work so hard here at Lake Hills. It's what we do and why we do what we do. But it's a game changer, what we do. We don't just get to see paychecks. We don't just get to see different houses or families built. We get to see eternity changed by what we do every day. That is changing the game. And we'd love to invite you to that. Would you bow your heads with me? See, I believe that God called us here on purpose for a purpose. And one of those purposes is to give you an opportunity to rethink, to shift the way you think. And for some of you in the room, This idea of a God who loves and cares and would sell it all—every, the most valuable things He has, just to get you—it's overwhelming. Just because it's overwhelming, don't miss your opportunity to take advantage of it. So, in a moment between you and God, if you've never accepted His free gift of salvation, that Jesus paid for by dying on the cross. Now is your moment. It's why he called you here today. It's why you're here. He's been pursuing you. He's been hunting you down. He's been running after you because he loves you that much. It's this quiet, simple prayer between you and the Lord to just say, God, I choose you to be my Lord and my Savior. It's a one-time decision. You can say it quietly under your breath right where you are. That's a one-time decision that no one can take away from you. That's a moment that you should tell someone about. You should stop by at the blue tent, fill out a connect card and just let them know, here's a decision that I made today. I stepped across that line of faith. There might be other people here today that are, that say, you know what? I need to reprioritize some things in my life. There needs to be a shift mentally for you as well. And we would encourage you to make that call. Get to work. Go after it. Invest in spiritual worth over all things. But for those of you who made that decision for the first time, you made that decision to accept Christ as your Lord and your Savior, to step across that line of faith. We think it's important here to mark that moment. We ask you to mark it by just simply raising your hand over your head just to say, that was me. I made that decision today. So if that's you, everybody's head's bowed and their eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. But if that's you, would you just throw your hand in the air and say, that's me, I made that decision today. I walked across that line of faith because it was worth it. And we have a tradition around here. When you put your hands down, we put our hands together and say... Welcome home, welcome home.